Welcome to episode 118 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week, my guest is Elaine Little. She graduated from college and couldn't find a job and was living at home and working part-time. The bus stop was by a recruiter's office, and she decided to join the Army. The recruiter dangled a bonus and an early start date for her career, and she took it instead of waiting to be a 46B public Army broadcaster, which is what she really wanted to do. Instead, she enlisted as a Morse code interceptor. In this interview, we talk about her time on active duty, her switch to National Guard, and what she's doing today. It's another great interview, so let's just dive right in. You're listening to Season 3 of the Women of the Military Podcast. Here you will find the real stories of female service members. I'm Amanda Huffman. I am an Air Force veteran, military spouse, and mom. I created Women of the Military Podcast in 2019 as a place to share the stories of female service members past and present with the goal of finding the heart of the story while uncovering the triumphs and challenges women face while serving in the military. If you want to be encouraged by the stories of military women and be inspired to change the world, keep tuned for this latest episode of Women of the Military. Welcome to the show today, Elaine. I'm excited to have you here. Thank you. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Well, I had uh, graduated from college and I was very aimless. I didn't know how to find a job. My parents were like very protective and, you know, let me move back in the house and let me find my way. And I had had visions of this going on for years and that scared me. So I was working, I, I was working like temporary jobs, taking care of elderly people. And that was, you know, not what I wanted to do with my life. I'd been a film major radio, television, and film, did a lot of writing, made my own short films. And I really wanted to do that. And, but I had no idea how to do it. And so when I would come home from the elderly caretaker positions, one of them I went to, it was right, the bus would let me off right by recruiter's office. You know, that's where you change the bus. (laughs) And so one day I walked in and I think I wanted to be, um, you know, 46 Romeo broadcast journalist, but they dangled money in front of me and I, like an idiot, went for the bonus instead of waiting for what I really wanted to do. So I ended up being a Morse code interceptor. That's how they get you with that money. Yep. Don't be stupid like I was. Yeah, I think sometimes, especially when you're young, I think you see the money and you're like, that's so nice. You don't think about like, is this actually a job I want to do? Because I remember the recruiter was like, these are all the jobs that have bonuses. And it's like, wait, I don't think we should start with these are all the jobs. Like, what do you want to do? And then let's see if there's jobs. Yeah. And they said I had to wait. And I was just like, no, I want to go now. You know, and it was just like this sense of urgency that really was not grounded in reality. You know, it's like, well, I don't have to go right that moment. Nothing was going to happen if I waited for four months. But for some reason at that age, I thought I had to get out now. So you took the bonus, and then how quickly after you went to the recruiter's office were you heading off to boot camp? I would say two or three months. So not not right away, but not very long either. Yeah. Well, I guess the 46 Romeo, the broadcast journalist, like it was like, oh, you'll have to wait six months. And this was like three. And I'm like, oh, no, I'll take that. And plus $8,000 before taxes. Before taxes. You learned about that too, huh? <laughs> so... 
did you start preparing to get ready to go to boot camp or were you just hanging out waiting for your time to ship out? I was not prepared at all. I had no idea about the military. I did have a friend in college who went to ROTC and she would take me to like repelling stuff on the weekends. So I thought I knew something, but I knew absolutely nothing. My family was not a military family. The only reason my father was in World War II was because he said he saw the handwriting on the wall. So he went and got into the Navy because he thought it would be a little easier on him. So I had absolutely no idea whatsoever. So what was boot camp like? It was terrible. It was really terrible. I was very much an introvert. I was not coordinated. I couldn't march correctly. They made fun of me. I didn't have a, I stopped having my period. I didn't have a bowel movement for like eight weeks. I didn't care. I thought, well, two less things I have to worry about. Plus, if I'd gone to the drill sergeant with no period, they would have said, you're pregnant. They, they were always freaking out about women being pregnant. And I thought my opinion of the drill instructors was kind of poor. I thought they were crass, you know, because they were using a lot of bad language. I don't know if I should say this, but they said we smelled like tuna fish. And one time I remember they, they, were, they were constantly t saying how much we smelled. And I remember one time he was standing next to us, one of them, and he said, who smells? And I just said, I smell, okay? And I was just so angry. And so I remember walking into the bay, but before I came in, some fellow you know, soldiers were talking about me. It was all female at the time, okay? And they were saying, well, I don't think she's stupid. <laughs> so, so it was kind of a bad experience. I mean, people were nice to me. I mean, the girls, the women, but I was just really, really klutzy and uncoordinated. And I had no idea what I was getting into. I was like the worst marcher. Yeah. I think the only reason I learned was because I did it in ROTC and like nobody was yelling at me. But like if I had to learn instantly at boot camp, my husband's like, why can't you keep in step. And I'm like, I just can't do it. <laughs> it's something. It's there. All people have all different kinds of intelligences. And I think I just didn't have that. I did get better later. They did another thing where they would have us assemble and disassemble the rifle. And you would have to, you know, and they kept doing it over and over again. And we were timing ourselves. And I was always the last one, always the last one, always the last one. As it went on, I got really nervous and my hands started sweating, which makes disassembling and assembling a rifle a hundred times harder. And so it was just like this was a day after day after day after day after day. So boot camp wasn't too much fun, but you made it through. Yeah. And then did you go to your next base or did you go to AIT? I went to AIT. I went to Fort Devens, Massachusetts to learn how to copy Morse code. That sounds really interesting. Is it interesting or? I mean, it's, it it's interesting in a way, but it wasn't interesting in, in terms of what I wanted to do with my life. It doesn't have much of an application in the kind of things I like. Yeah, because it's just, it's not broadcast media for sure. Oh, no, no. Mm -mm. You're listening to broadcast, but you're not doing it. So you went to AIT and then you learned, you got trained up in what you were supposed to do. And then where did you go after that? I went to Hawaii and I was very excited because I, I liked this guy and he was going to Hawaii also. So I was very excited about that. And uh, it, I was at uh, Field Station Kania. And it was next to Schofield Barracks in Hawaii, where they filmed From Here to Eternity many, many years ago, the original. And uh, so, you know, that went Burt Lancaster, Frank Sinatra, who else? Montgomery Clift. So it was it was really cool. Um, I, I really liked Hawaii, although I felt a little bit, you're on an island. I don't have any relatives there. You know, it's kind of restricted. It's really hard to get anywhere, you know, other than an, an, a part of Hawaii, another island. Yeah, so you were young and then you were 
in Hawaii, kind of isolated from everyone. Did, was there a good camaraderie between all the military members because you guys are all so far away from family, or were you pretty alone? Well, there was good com- camaraderie, but I felt like a lot of it was centered around drinking, and um, that was a problem for a lot of people. And I just saw like there was just a lot of I felt like bad leadership in the ways like they would they had us on these this weird schedule where you were working six days, six days shifts and then you'd have two days off and then you're working six swing shifts, which is like, you know, three to 11. And then you were working six mids and you would just keep doing this. And it was really I think it was screwing up people's you know, metabolisms and physical and mental abilities. After the swing shift, it was only a 48-hour break. So they'd always have a like drinking party right after that. And I'm thinking these people just finished working. Now they're drinking and they're all driving home. So I just felt like there was a little bit lack of direction and there was no attempt to be like, I just even ask people to slow down and not drink as much. It was just sort of like, eh, you know, they're soldiers. Yeah, that would be really hard on your body, the, like, constant mm-hmm. shift. Like, yes. it's one thing to work, like, nights for, like, six weeks and then days, but, like, you work it and then you switch and then you switch, like, constantly rotating. That would be really hard. Yeah, I mean, and I knew it was wrong. I knew something was wrong because they would have someone come in and give us a talk once a year and talk about how it wasn't bad for us. So then you know it's screwed up. That's like the military. Yeah, we know this is bad, but we're going to just convince you that it's not bad because (laughs) funny and horrible at the same time. So you liked being in Hawaii, but then you had this crazy schedule and then it was a lot of the social aspects were around drinking. So it was really hard to like connect with people. Well, I mean, I connected, but it was like people would get married like after knowing each other a week or two, maybe if they were you know, more conservative. And uh, it was just weird. You know, I, I, it seems like the, the relationships were kind of dysfunctional. I don't want to paint it all negative. I mean, it was exciting. I flew to Japan. I flew to Korea. You know, I, I did travel. I went to Hong Kong. But it was a little strange, you know, it, that, you know, the, the relationships and everything seemed to be on an ex- some accelerated path. And everyone was like, well, I, you know, I can't go to Fort Bragg. I'm going to miss... Joe, let's get married. You know, it was it was that kind of thing. Yeah, that sounds yeah, that sounds like the military. So, how long were you there, and were you guys doing that constant shift the whole time where you yes. would work? Yes. Oh man. Yes, and you know what? There was a woman. They stopped making pregnant women do it after a pregnant woman worked that kind of shift and actually hit another car head on on the way home from work one night. And I mean, I think the other couple were killed. I mean, it was she wasn't. But I mean, it was just really, really tragic. And there were several drunk driving incidents while I was there. But this was not a drunk driving incident. This, she was tired. She was pregnant. You know, that that was not. But, you know, there was just so such a weird idea of what was healthy for you. Yeah. So you were there. Did you go on any of your deployments while you were there? No, I didn't go on any deployments until I got into the reserves and the guard. After Hawaii, did you get out or? No, I applied for this special program where I could go to the Defense Language Institute. And if I went and extended for 36 months, but they would only extend me for 35 months, they said, because they said if it was 36, it would be like an enlistment. So I'm like, okay, whatever. And so they sent me to DLI, but they sent, usually it's in Monterey, but at the time they had a campus in San Francisco where they were teaching Korean, German, Spanish. I think that was it. 
and Russian. And I was taking Russian. So I went there next. It was San Francisco, Presidio. Oh, that'd be a nice place to go. We were in the old VA hospital. And so, you know, the rooms, I had my own bathroom. It was kind of nice. Beautiful view, San Francisco. I'm from California, so that's a, that's a nice place to be. So, and you wanted to learn Russian? That was the language that you picked? It was okay. I mean, I was, you know, I, I, I was like, I just wanted to learn a language and I wanted to get out of Morse code. And so I just thought the Russian sounded cool, you know, and it was one of the ones that was offered. So. So how long was that school? Is that? That's a year. That's a year. And then where did you go after San that? Angelo, Goodfellow Air Force Base, because you learn, you know, you first you learn the language and then you learn the applications for what you're doing in the military. So that was in Texas. And how long were you there? That was like three months. I got recycled. I've been recycled more than once in a military course. It was very hard. It was really stressful. It was much more stressful than the language part. And, you know, so I got recycled and I was just like, oh, God, you know, how am I going to get through this? It was very stressful. And also, they I remember, you know how they do those evaluations at the, I mean, this is Army, so I don't know, but at, at the end of the course, and they, you know, they're saying, you were a good contributor to the class, blah, blah, blah. Well, they graded me on my leadership. Now, every other class I've had since then does not grade on leadership when you're the student, you know. But they said I had terrible leadership. I'm like, I'm a student. What do you want me to do? I mean, I don't, I didn't even know. It's like they they didn't, this, you know, the instructor or something just didn't like me. So it's like, well, I'll pass her, but zero for leadership. <laughs> even though I was sitting in a class all day. I don't know, you know. So you were like, what leadership was I supposed to do? It's like, okay, I get it. You don't like me. Okay. That's a little weird. Yeah. So you made it through. You had learned Russian and then you learned how to apply it. And then where did you go after that? I went that? to another course. Well, I got married right after that. And I went to went on my honeymoon to South America because that's where I wanted to go, Brazil and Argentina. After that, I come back and I have an add-on course at Fort Devens. And I was kind of, you know, the thing is, this training had taken a long time. That 35 months was just clipping by, you know. And by the time, I mean, I took, when I took the add-on course at Devons, that put me into the next year. And I got to Fort, Fort Polk, Louisiana. I only had like nine months left on my thing. And they were pissed. They were like, how the heck did you only get to sign up for this many months, you know, you you should be here for another two years and, you know, you wasted the Army's money and, you know, all this stuff. It was kind of, I mean, you know, it was kind of maddening, but it was kind of, to me and in my, in my head, I was like, they're ridiculous, you know, telling me I should have asked for more time. And also it, it was, t- you know, Fort Polk is pretty bad. So I'm like, you're mad at me because I only have seven months left. You're jealous because you wish you could get out of here that quick. Yeah, that's probably more. What mm-hmm. it yeah. So I, I don't know. It's like I played my cards right so I could get out. You know, sorry, bud, you know. Well, and like you just did whatever they told you. It wasn't like you were trying to work the system. You and they just- told me I couldn't get the 36 months. I'm like, okay, fine. So after those seven months, you, you transitioned to the reserves? Yes. I was pregnant at that by the end, that time. I had my baby at Fort Polk. Because we wanted the army to pay for it because we didn't have any health insurance. <laughs> and so got the baby, grabbed her, and went up to Chicago. And I worked up the day I was in labor. They had me going around working. And I didn't even know I was in labor because, you know, my first kid, I had no idea. I didn't have an older sister or, you know, friends that 
were pregnant that I was close with. And I was like, oh, you know, it feels kind of uncomfortable. I keep having to bend over. And, you know, and, and I remember at lunch that day, this guy was looking at me like, I don't know. I think something's, I think, I don't know. You know, <laughs> and that night I had the baby. So. So you're tough. I don't know. I don't know. Or stupid. I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, I went in Chicago. I joined the reserves. I actually got out in September. And by October, I was drilling because the grandparents love taking care of the baby. Mm, that's good. So you got out in September. Had the You had the baby right before you got out. And then yeah. October, you were already drilling. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. And so you did the reserves. Did you stay in the same job or what? No, was that was one condition. I was like, I'm not doing, I, you know, I, I didn't mind the Russian, but I said, I want to be a 46 Romeo finally. And so finally, when I got in the reserves, I did get the 46 Romeo course. And if, when it was at Fort Ben Harrison in uh, Indianapolis. And so I got that right a year after my daughter was born. I went there and I got that, finally got that course. It was great. That's awesome. So you switched career fields and then you started drilling and then you went to your like AIT about a year after your daughter was born. And then you said that while you were in the reserves, you deployed. I did. Three times, right? Yes. The first time was in 95 and I went to Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. And this was when the Balseros or the boat people, um, people when Cubans were leaving Cuba, and we're trying to, you know, these makeshift rafts they were using to float over on, you know, the Atlantic to Florida. And the Coast Guard was picking them up and putting them all on Guantanamo in these different camps. You know, there was one camp X-ray if you were like a bad guy. And then the other camps were when they were checking you out. And so they had tons of Cubans there. And so I was sent there as a broadcaster to do like public service announcements and to run the radio station. And we would play like salsa all day. And then we'd run these very kind of strange public service announcements. Like we had one like don't eat the iguanas because apparently that was an issue. We had um, don't dive off the cliffs because that definitely was an issue. I don't know. You know, people would just get you know, antsy in the camps because they were waiting and waiting and waiting. And a lot of them, you know, they got citizenship. They got their residency eventually. It just, it just took a while. And, you know, and the thing is there were Haitians there too. And I mean, the whole, it was very, very disturbing to me to see Cubans getting their, well, I mean, it was great. They were getting, you know, able to be a common American citizen, but the Haitians like, you're going back, you're going back. And I mean, I just can't put it down to anything but racism. I mean, I know people make arguments about the politics of Haiti versus Cuba or whatever they want to say, but I just thought, you know, it's ridiculous, you know. But the Cubans were very interesting. They were very, a lot of great artists and they would use things like MRE packets for artistic materials. For example, they would melt down the plastic and make sculptures. That's really interesting. Yeah. I wish I bought it. There was this one thing with like barbed wire and then a a person's image. And it was very, really, really cool, really cool stuff. And, and art, arts and uh, oil paintings and dancing and music. And Gloria Estevan came and played. And, you know, um, Arturo Sandoval, Arturo Sandoval, like a famous, I think, uh, Trump trumpet player. Wow. That sounds really interesting. Were you surprised when you found out you were going there? Or was that something that you knew was coming? I knew it was coming. They had mentioned it. You know, I, I just felt like at the time I was like, well, I never get to go anywhere good. So, you know, I'll believe it when I see it, you know. So, but it came down. So it was very interesting. And how long were you deployed there for? That was six months. Was it hard on your family or your job? 
You know, at the time I was a, a reservist slash housewife. That was it. And yes, it was hard in the family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I mean, I, I loved it so much that I tried to push that away. Yeah, that makes sense. I think sometimes you have to do stuff for yourself and your family will figure it out. And that's what they did, right? That's kind of what we did. And yeah. I don't know if I regret that or not. Sometimes I think I don't because I don't know. I just think that um, you need to, you know, just because you're a mother and a wife, I think you can... I think you can do things like that. Um, I mean, it does. It's it can get out of hand. I think it got sort of out of hand later. But at the time, it you know this was just one thing, and they had the grandparents there and everything. Yeah. So that was in ninety five, right? Ninety five. And then you said that you deployed to Bosnia, Bosnia. Yeah, Sarajevo. And I was also at the radio station there. That was really cool because it was a NATO force. And so we were working with the Germans and the French and the, the Brits and uh, I think some Scandinavians and the Turkish. And I was at the radio station and I had a really great German commander. We really got along great, Captain Mueller. And it was good because I didn't get along so well with the Bosnian ladies. They, you know, they kept talking about they'd had this young kid, you know, that he was, I knew him. He was a nice guy before and it kept talking about how great it was when he was there and I'm like okay well I'm here now okay <laughs> you know, but, but they were just sort of like but you know Tom or whatever his name was you know we liked him I'm like I know you liked him okay but he was just after a while he's just like you don't have to go see those ladies just do your work here <laughs> so he was cool he understood he did he knew he knew what was up when was that that you went to Bosnia that was 98 to 99 Mm -hmm. I was going to guess that yeah. time frame. Mm -hmm. I sort of know my history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it's a fascinating place, you know, and I worked, I did some filming there while I was there. I had my, uh, my uh, Sony Hi8 camera and this friend of mine that I'm still friends with, she made a film for 4-H. She introduced 4-H to the Bosnians. I mean, I, that's the way I remember it. Okay, maybe it was there before, but I remember her. She was saying she introduced it. So they did a film, you know, about um, trying to get Bosnian high schoolers interested in uh, 4-H and you know agriculture and that kind of thing. And I was involved with that. That sounds really cool. And so was that six months too? That was nine months. Yeah, I think what's interesting is I don't think people think about how often the reserves deploy or that they deploy before 9-11. I think that there was a lot of hype about people like the National Guard and reserves deploying when 9-11 happened and the wars kicked off. But you deployed twice before. Any yeah. Of yeah. I think there weren't a lot of deployments like there between like the end of the Vietnam War and maybe 19, the early 90s, there weren't a lot. But then after by the thing is 46 Romeo at the time was like one of the most deployable MOSs according to something I read when I was there. And uh, so that was, we were in kind of a unique situation where our skills were wanted for whatever reason, but it was mostly like hearts and minds type stuff. And let's persuade people that, you know, our presence here is not threatening or, you know, we're fun and happy people and we want you to be happy and fun too. And so that kind of thing. And so that was, it was, it was different. I mean, if you were maybe in some other uh, MOS, maybe you wouldn't have seen it at that time. Absolutely. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because the like the public affairs arena is a high deployment, like especially after the wars kicked off. But that makes sense that they would be such high demand because there's so much stuff going on. And it just sounds so interesting and so fascinating. And were you a housewife when you went on that deployment too? Yes, yes, uh -huh. yes. 
I mean, it was weird. I like if I told people not in the reserves that I was, you know, they they would consider the as a housewife, you know, and they would say, well, you don't work. You're in the reserves. But if I told someone, you know, outside that I was in the reserves, they'd think I was full time, you know, so it was weird. You know, in the reserves, I'm a housewife outside. They're like, oh, you're in the reserves. You must, you know, all this stuff. Yeah, that's kind of funny how the different viewpoints were. And so you deployed one more time, and this time it was to Afghanistan. When was that? Yeah, and I also had a lot of short-term deployments. I mean, I went to Ecuador, Thailand, Panama. I went. I spent um, three weeks in St. Petersburg, Russia. So you know, I did a lot of short-term stuff too. Um, but in yeah, I went to Afghanistan in 2004, and by that time I changed MOSs to interrogator mainly because I topped out with promotions at E6 for 46 Romeo. Now, I think now I would have been like, I think I should have just stayed, you know, I, you know, because going back into the interrogation stuff, it was, you know, it, I mean, I wasn't going back, but I wasn't starting it. it. I just feel like, why did I want to switch? But I think at the, at the time my husband was doing it and I would sort of, I was sort of following him from unit to unit, you know, because we, so, because it was easier. And the only problem with that was, you know, I just didn't have my own individual personality or perception of me. It was like us together. And so he's, he was kind of like, you know, one of these people that's like always kind of throwing his weight around. And so I felt like that hurt me a lot because people would be mad at him because like, oh, Sergeant Tuman did this. And I would be there and they'd be like, oh, his wife. <laughs> so, you know, it, I did not, I did not have a separate personality from his for some reason, or people could not look at me individually. But anyway, I went to Afghanistan in 2004, yeah, and it was, uh, we spent a lot of time in Fort Hood getting ready, and then we finally got there, like, May of 2004. And your husband wasn't in the military, or your ex-husband, sorry, wasn't in the military the whole time. Oh, yeah, because I met him at DLI. Oh, okay. Yeah. And did he get out and do reserves, or, because you said you were near grandparents when you went to Guantanamo Bay, or? Yeah, they were his grandparents, I mean, his mother and father. And he's been in the whole time. He's still in the reserves, as far as I know, although he's IRR. So you guys were both in the reserves? Mm-hmm. Then the guard. Then he, and then after I got out, he went back in the reserves. Yeah. Okay. So, so it's confusing. I know. <laughs> it is. It's confu- That's military. I think people think dual military is hard when you're active duty, but it's like it doesn't it still has all these dynamics when you're a reservist or your national guard, just because like trainings and like the drill weekends, like you had the grandparents. So that probably helped out a lot. And you were gone all the time. You were home, but then you got to go to all these places for a few weeks. And I think it's just so interesting to hear about the reserve. You have this like one week in a month, two weeks a year, but that's no one I've talked to. It's like, yeah, that's what I did. That's like, not since the early 90s, I don't think you, you you find that, you know, or maybe, I mean, maybe lately it's been like that. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I think even today it's not like that because I heard an interview uh, on a spouse podcast, a spouse angle that I listened to with two reservist spouses and they were talking about how much their husband was gone. And I was like, that's really weird. Like they're gone all the time. So it's it's interesting to hear about how the stereotype or the preconceived notion of the reserves is probably not that accurate. I mean, sometimes it probably is, but depending on your job and what you're doing, it has a big impact. Yeah, and there's a difference between the reserves and the guard too. Um, I found the guard very, very much more political because it's state controlled, and so you know, I felt like there was who gotten head person was very, you know, who you know and that kind of thing. And so it was interesting to see the differences between the two. 
Yeah, that is really interesting. So you were in Afghanistan in 2004 and you were doing interrogation? Yeah, and I loved it. I mean, that was my favorite deployment was Afghanistan. I mean, it was early enough that there weren't as many restrictions. And I I was able to go out with the MPs when they would go on patrols on the weekends. And later on, I would tell people like a couple of years after me, like, we're not allowed to do that. Nobody is allowed to do that. I'm like, the thing is, if you get there early enough, they don't have all the rules in place. And then as they go along and people make mistakes, they put the rules in place. And if one person does something wrong, then they don't want anyone ever doing whatever that was again. And, you know, very draconian. I would go out with the MPs and take photographs. And I went to went to Kabul. We bought rugs, went to a rug store, you know, all this stuff. And uh, it was just great. We'd go to this, there was this grocery store on the way to Kabul. I don't know, some kind of international place. And then we'd go to there. And it was just uh, a lot of fun. And I, I was able to go on a lot of those. And I, whenever there was a mission, I was always like, send me, send me, send me to the point where I was considered annoying because I wanted to go on all this stuff. But when we initially got there, the our commander was very nice, but very conservative, did not want to send any women at first. Now, this wasn't, you know, army policy. It was just like, well, you know, we'll send Sergeant so-and-so first and see how it goes. And so finally, he let women go. And so I did get to go to Ghazni. Um, I got to go to Asadabad for a month, which was fantastic. I loved it there. I got to go to Jalalabad with the special forces because they specifically wanted a woman to help out with the searching at the at the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. So it was just, that was fantastic. I really liked it. Afghanistan, for the most part, was a good experience. There were bad parts, but for the most part, it was a very good experience. Yeah, it's so interesting because I went in 2010 and my mission took me off base. And like, I remember people being like, how do you get to go off base? I don't want to get off this base (laughs) because they were stuck on Bagram doing whatever it was and they wanted to go and like, see Afghanistan. And I was like, well, I don't really want to go off base, but I I guess I get to. And like, I, so it was like a di- totally different experience than people who like could not leave that. I just think, I mean, I just don't know how people could do it. I mean, I, I think it just would lead to all, all kinds of mental health issues, just being stuck in your tent, you know, and, and it was just, uh, I mean, I think Afghanistan's beautiful. I mean, some of the best photographs I ever took were in Afghanistan, just those big mountains and snow. Um, just fantastic. Yeah, I agree. It's so beautiful, especially the northern part. Is I w- I didn't ever go farther south than Kabul, but like northern Afghanistan is so beautiful, <laughs> so beautiful. I did a blog post. I'll link to it in the show notes called Afghanistan through pictures, and it's just like pictures of like the culture and the beauty of Afghanistan, and it's it's so pretty. Because I had a PA team with me, so I have a lot of pictures from. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, I took. I must have taken like two hundred pictures, and it was just, uh, you know, and I mean, I've used them in all kinds of things I've done since. Like, um, there was a book I remember, Chicago Veterans of War. They used some of the photographs. Um, I was in Veteran Voices. They used some of the photographs. You know, I've been, you know, getting them out there. Yeah, it's really cool. That's awesome. Yeah, so many people don't have like any pictures from their deployment or they have like one or two. And I like, I'm like, oh, I have this whole CD that the PA team gave me when I went home. And so, and I've used them a lot for my blog and my podcast. So it's been great. So you really enjoyed your time in Afghanistan and got to see and do a lot of different things. And then you came home and how much longer were you in the reserves? I was in till 2000. I mean, I was in the guard by then because I got in the guard like, nine, like 2000. 
1999, 2000, around then. I was until 2008, and I went for warrant officer 2006. It, it was it was a weird warrant officer course I went through. It was uh, weekends for like nine months and then a two-week period instead of going to Fort Rucker, Alabama. And so I went for that, and I got some bonus. I didn't care about the bonus, but it was just some silly bonus that they told me if I stayed in for 10 more years. But I left in 2008 because... You know, I wanted to be a warrant officer, but I think it was more like my husband's a warrant officer. So I want to be a warrant officer. And, you know, I don't know. You know, I think we were a little bit competitive. So I found the warrant officer course being broken up the way it was not a good fit for me. You know, I made it through, but, you know, it was the height of the Iraq war. And I think they were just pushing people through, you know, get them all out. And it just, I need to be immersed in something, you know, even though basic training was hard on me, it would have been terrible if I was just doing it one time a week for two days, you know. And so the whole experience was just kind of sour for me. And once I finished it, I I did like a year and then I got out and then, you know, then like five or six years later, the state of Illinois, because it's the Illinois National Guard, comes back to me for the money that I was given to do, you know, extra 10 years. And I'm like, I paid it in one, you know, fell swoop. By that time, I just thought, why am I doing this? You know, why am I doing this? You know, I, it's okay, but it's not really what I wanted to do with my life. So what have you done since you left the military behind and what are you doing now? And we can talk about most recent or we can talk about both. Well, I'll just, I'll start. I'll, I'll just go chronologically from like, after I got out, I, you know, I hadn't worked a full-time job, you know, other than deployments for many, many years. And I found it very disorienting. I did get, I, you know, I was applying for government jobs because that's kind of all I knew. And back then when you left the military, it was kind of like, go federal. You know, it's just like, that's what you do. Or maybe state, you know, you go to the government. So I'm like, all right, fine. I'll look into the federal government. Well, I got I got a job and I can't even believe I got the job. It was with the Department of Labor and it was a pension investigator. And I don't, I still don't even know what that is. Okay. And I had it for like nine months and I didn't get any training for the first three months. I just sat in an office and listened to the radio and then we went to training in Boulder, Colorado, and it really wasn't training. It was just, I don't know, there were a lot of classes, but they were just sort of like talking to us and not telling us exactly what we need to do. So I thought, uh, I'll look around for another job. So I found a job with the state of Illinois, and it was with a film office. So I was really excited about that. And I did get that job. And I went there, and they told me something that you never want to hear when you get a job. And that is, you know, after you walk in, and they say, well this is a new position and we're still figuring it out. Okay. That's bad. Okay. Because I couldn't do, because they didn't know what they wanted me to do. I couldn't do what they wanted me to do. And I'm convinced, although this may be my paranoia at work, that I think I was, I was hired because I was a veteran and was considered, you know, they could check that off for the year of 2008 or whatever. And then they got rid of me right before I went, came up to my six months. You know, it was like that week on a Monday, they called me in and said they were letting me go that Friday. It was the weirdest thing ever. And I mean, in hindsight, I think it's kind of funny. That week after they tell me I'm fired and I I lied to everyone and told them, well, my daughter's graduating from high school. I need to be there for, you know, which I did. But, you know, and they took me to a birthday lunch that, that week, which I was kind of unenthusiastic about, but I played along. And it was, I mean, after that, I was just like, I can't work. I, I don't know where I'm gonna, what I'm going to do. I mean, I just I just can't do this employment thing, obviously. I've been out too long. I don't know how to schmooze. I don't know how to figure out how to do a job. And so 
I was, I mean, this was like almost, uh, by that time, it was almost 2008 or so. And, you know, that was the recession. I had such a hard time finding a job. I finally found something with the census, like in 2000, they were like the run up to the census. And when I finally got a job, and this was after applying to all kinds of things, I, I got a job as a secretary GS5 with the IRS, which is, you know, most secretary, I say, I have a master's degree. And you know what the thing is? I, you don't need a master's degree to be a secretary, but you had, you needed a master's degree to be competitive, to get a job during a recession at a GS5 level and a veteran, all this stuff that puts you, you know, higher up in the hierarchy to get a job I had. And so I got the GS5 position, which was, I got to tell you, an excellent job. The IRS is the best federal agency I ever worked for. Bar none. I mean, it was it was hard. I mean, I was I was and I was going through a divorce at the time. So I'm like, I need to work. And my divorce lawyer was like, you need to get a job. And, and then I remember one time she was like, can you get a job? <laughs> I, should, I should have fired her. Anyway, I was there for a while and I was with the IRS for a few years. And then I went over to eventually to the VA. And now I'm at the VA. Yeah, the recession. That's crazy. To it think. was bad. You know, I don't think people remember, but you know, I just remember applying and applying and applying nothing. I wonder if it's going to be similar with like COVID because I know there's a lot of jobs lost, but I feel like, I don't know. I don't, I haven't looked for a job since I left the military. Well, this, that you have a job. Yeah, <laughs> I do. And plus, you know, you know, who's losing jobs at the, uh, women are losing them. Women are losing jobs at a higher rate because they're in you know, the healthcare professions and the, more in the retail and more in the food, you know, service and all that. And so women are losing jobs at a higher rate than, you know, than men. And I mean, I just, it's a tragedy. And, you know, the health and the childcare thing and people are quitting their jobs because it's like, I can't do homeschooling and do my job, you know, and it shouldn't, it shouldn't come down to that. Yeah. It's been really hard. Yeah. I, I pulled my son out of school to homeschool because the virtual online learning would have meant that I couldn't work. Cause I was like, I have a four-year-old at home and then I'd have a second grader and I was like, I can't do this. So I had to find a new path and we've been making it work. It's actually been a lot more fun than I ever expected. Oh so, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. So you're, are you working remotely right now? Yes, or? I'm working remotely for the VA in Los Angeles as the Homeless Veterans Outreach Coordinator. I got the job after, you know, COVID restrictions were in place. I've never met my coworker, coworkers except through Microsoft Teams, which is kind of weird. And, but I'm also, um, the reason I came to Los Angeles, I, says, I said, I sold my house late 2019. I got rid of a lot of stuff. I transferred, I put in a, a request. I mean, I actually had to interview to get a job here in Los Angeles in the same thing I was doing in Chicago, but I've since changed the homeless coordinator. But that's what I initially did. And I got accepted in February. And then I came out here to pick up my computer. I had to come out for a week just to get oriented or, you know, they wanted me to, to see me and all that. Then I went back. Then I came back in March to get an apartment because I, you know, and I would still have my stuff in Chicago. I had just sold my house. And when I came back in March, that was the week they started closing down everything while I was looking for an apartment. So I was just like, I, I took the second apartment I saw and I went back and, and then I got a text and they're like, um, you can't, I have been working in the Chicago office. I was not working at home there because I was in the middle of moving and I didn't want to be, you know, I wanted to be in an office. I didn't want to have my stuff in the moving 
you know, area. And they closed down the Chicago office. They closed down the Los Angeles office. I had no equipment other than my laptop. I had no monitor. I had no mouse. I had no <laughs> nothing. So my ex-husband gave me everything I needed. So kudos to him. He gave me a monitor. He gave me a mouse. He gave me a mouse pad. And he set me up in his basement. So I worked in his basement for two weeks until I could get everything together and packed in my car, including two cats, and come out here because I really want to be a TV writer. Wow, what a crazy, like, that's a crazy COVID story. But that's like, I don't think people hear so much, like, so many people's, like, their lives just stop. But, like, some people were in the middle of, like, moving across the country. Right. And, like, and this was before, I mean, I w- this was planned before COVID. It just happened right. all during the thing. Yeah. Yeah. What a crazy story. Well, I'm glad your ex-husband helped you out. Yeah. And yeah. That's, that's good. He's good as a friend, not as a husband. Yeah. Well, that's good. So I really enjoyed hearing your story, but I have one more question, which is what advice would you give to young women who are considering joining the military? Well, first, I got to preface this by saying I never listened to any advice I was given (laughs) when I was joining the military. No one offered any, but if they had, I wouldn't have. But still, I'll put in my two cents. Um, I would say pick a job that you like. Don't be enticed by money. Money is meaningless. Okay, it's not meaningless, but I mean, overall, okay? Don't worry about how much you're going to make. Don't worry about, uh, you know, oh, I won't have that bonus. Uh, Wait the six months for the MOS you really want to do. Tell them, look, I'm really interested in joining the Navy, Army, Air Force, Marine. I really want to join. But you know what? If you can't get this uh, specific MOS for me, I don't think I can do it. Tell them that and then walk out. And maybe they'll, they'll probably call you, you know? I didn't know how to be like that. I don't know if I know how to be like that now, but I'm trying. That's really good advice. I don't know if I'm like that either, but like that's the best advice. If you want to do something in the military and they're like, well, you can't do it, be like, all right, I'm leaving. Especially if you have the ASVAB score and like, and all the like qualifications and they're just like, you can't do it. It's like, all right, then I'll just go somewhere else and see what happens. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your story. I really appreciate getting to have you on the podcast. Great, great. listening to this week's episode of Women of the Military Podcast. Do you love all things Women of the Military Podcast? Become a subscriber so you never miss an episode and consider leaving a review. It really helps people find the podcast and helps the podcast to grow. Are you still listening? You could be a part of the mission of telling the stories of military women by joining me on Patreon at patreon.com slash women of the military or you can order my book Women of the Military on Amazon. Every dollar helps helps to continue the work I am doing. Are you a business owner? Do you want to get your product or service in front of the Women of the Military podcast audience? Get in touch with the Women of the Military podcast team to learn more. All the links on how you can support Women of the Military podcast are located in the show notes. Thanks again for listening and for your support.